invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. And we pick it up, it's on page 1005 in your Bibles. We pick it up in verse 35, where this a suggested connection between Jesus and King David. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Such people will be punished most severely. And our real focus for this morning carries on in verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting the money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, everything that she had to live on. The word of God. As Nick mentioned a little bit earlier in the service, it is Christ the King Sunday. It's the final Sunday of worship in the Christian year. And it's a, a fairly re recent addition uh, to the Christian year, not just yesterday, but, but it isn't, it's not one of the oldest um, celebrations in the Christian year. And, and, um, and since it developed as a way to end the Christian year, to, to recognize that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, that he is the hope of the world, um, that, that sort of demarcation in our lives together as Christians has, has not gone without some criticism and some concern. Um, one of the reasons for that is that, that uh, I think thoughtful, thoughtful Christians are concerned that... Um, that we may celebrate Christ the King Sunday and we might sort of take the wrong idea about it. Um, what, they're, what they're concerned with really is what we call triumphalism. This idea that we've won, everybody else has lost, Jesus is on the throne and um, uh, forget about the rest of you. Um, what this kind of triumphalism does is 
is it, is it actually kind of gives us the kind of king that we want. And there are those, I think, thoughtful voices in the church who, who want to say that, that we need to receive the kind of king that God has sent to us to save the world. And so Christ the King Sunday has that, has that tension to it. Uh, and in a few moments, we're going to sing the song together, The, the Servant King. And it's going to, uh, just even in the title, it's going to remind us of the nature of Jesus' kingship over creation and over our lives. It's a, it's a certain kind of kingship. It's, it's not necessarily the king that we want for ourselves or that we want for our families or that we want for our lives. And so we, we come to this text um, this morning for two reasons. One, one, because we are having a conversation a little bit about money these last couple of weeks. We, we talked about Zacchaeus last week, who was a person who was rich. And we're going to get the minority report in this story of the poor widow, the sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. But, but we're, we're looking at this text because of money, and, and maybe we're, we're looking at this text because it's a, it's a kind of a glimmer, a further glimmer into the nature of God's kingdom that comes to us through Jesus. And so we're calling the widow in Mark's gospel, we're calling her the king's widow in order to try to capture that relationship and that tension. Jesus sits down and watches people hand in their offering. I've, I've had people say to me that that's actually, actually a little creepy, that Jesus actually sits down and begins to watch people give their offerings. We're actually going to invite you to do that. Phil, just in case the announcement was clear, and Phil's announcements are really clear, um, we're going to invite you to come and to present your gifts and offerings to God as a part of your worship. And we're not going to forget, because it would be poor of us to forget that Jesus is watching us. He's watching all of us. He's looking at our hearts, and he's observing the activities of our hands. And so what Jesus does is he, he watches people give money. And, and then what he does is he draws particular attention to one person in the whole community. He draws attention, and, 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 and for us, it, it kind of, um, again, is, is, is a little odd, it seems, that, that Jesus is taking this sacred act of worship, this sacred act of loving God, and kind of using it as, as a kind of a, of a lesson. Why does he do that? Why does he say to the disciples, you see this woman who gave these two copper coins? And the word for the coins is, is the word that describes the, the least denomination that was being circulated in Palestine at that time. Now, it's fascinating for us to look at this text together in 2014 because most merchants and businesses no longer except pennies. Pennies are virtually meaningless and useless. But this widow, this poor widow, gives two coins. What's Jesus doing in drawing attention? What, what he's doing is he's doing biography as theology. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, that phrase or thought about that term. But, but biography as theology is a way to, to think about God's truth lived out in human life. It's this, it's this understanding that, that you actually can't abstract uh, 
ideas or realities about God apart from how they are lived up out. It's this insistence that the word becomes flesh. And so Jesus becomes sort of the ultimate and beautiful expression of biography as theology. He becomes the word who lives it out perfectly. And, and in doing that, he gives this exact representation of who God is. All of the fullness of who God is dwells in this particular life that we call Jesus. And Jesus is doing this with people all through the Gospels. He, he does it on so many different occasions, we, we hardly notice it. You remember, he, he takes a child in his arms and he uses the child as a way to teach about faith and trust. He has this conversation with um, his disciple Nathaniel who calls to him. And, and as Nathaniel is coming to Jesus, Jesus says, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no trickery, no guile. And Nathaniel, interestingly enough, in that conversation with Jesus, he is the one who says very, very early in the gospel of John, John chapter one, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It takes a certain kind of person to be able to identify the nature of God's lordship and the nature of Jesus being a king. It takes a certain kind of person, a kind of a, a purity of heart to understand what it means that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. The early church, the apostles, pick up on Jesus' biography as theology. Hebrews 11 might be the classic when, when this theologically rich writer, the writer of Hebrews, when he wants to talk about faith, and instead of giving a long lecture, he gives a very short definition of faith but he gives a much longer description that could even lead to a longer investigation. He gives this long list of people, and he points to these people, and there's some curious people in that list. And he says, these people are people of faith. And the reason is, is because you have to look at people. You have to see how the word lives its way out in people's lives in order to get that sense that God is present there. In Christian funerals, those of us who have the privilege of, of speaking um, more regularly at celebrations of people's lives, one of the things that we, we always try to do is we, we always try to listen to a person's life in order to recognize and to be able to point to, on behalf of the community, to how the person's life points us to Jesus. There's an importance in the biography. And so, so Jesus is looking at this person and he's seeing in this poor widow a person that he wants to, to celebrate, that he wants to encourage, that he wants to draw other people's attention to. He does it, I think, because she gives everything she has. This is something that speaks deeply to Jesus. It's not the amount of money. It's the fact that she gives everything she has. 
This isn't just an object lesson. This is something that actually moves Jesus, that gets his attention, that helps him to notice, and that eventually gives him the opportunity to express the ways of God's kingdom with his disciples. It's not easy for most of us to give a lot, even. And today we have an opportunity to reflect about what it means to give everything when we don't really have anything to give. Just a question, just a kind of a, an action of spiritual formation in the middle of, of the sermon. Who, who was the first, little exercise in biography as theology, who was the first person in your life that taught you that generosity was interesting? Who was the first person in your life who, because of the way they lived, because of the way that they exercised their relationship with their material goods, how they received it, how they distributed it, how they shared it, how they celebrated it, how they talked about it. Who was the first person who, because of the quality of their life around money, around material wealth, sort of got your attention and sort of perked your curiosity because of their generosity in their relationship with that money? For me, it was my maternal grandmother, my mother's mother. Her name was Annie Hannah. I remember so many things about my grandmother. Um, it's, she's my best claim to Presbyterian roots, to be honest. Um, she was born in a house that shared the same wall with the wall of the church in a little town in the west of Scotland called Stevenson, which we had the privilege to to visit um, several years ago and many years after she died. But the things I remember about my grandmother, um, who was also my good friend, I remember um, throughout our life that she would come and stay with us um, and my mom and our family. My mom was her only daughter. Um, she had three sons. And, and she would stay with us sometimes for long periods of time, helping us praying for us, just walking with us through very, very difficult times. She came when, in fifth grade, I contacted scarlet fever, and our home in those days was completely quarantined. And so she came to, to stay with me for several weeks, um, to be my friend, uh, so that I wouldn't be alone um, uh, in our home. My mom was off to work, and my sister was uh, off to school. And I remember those times, even though I was really sick, uh, just as wonderful gifts when she was with us for those times. She, I remember that she came um, during a period of time when her daughter, my mom, became a young widow for the first time. And um, how her love and her presence and her kindness uh, to us was so important as that, that missing voice, that missing heart um, in our family home. I remember um, her at Christmas, probably more um, than anything, um, because every year we, we'd taken a year to forget her, her, her tricks and her ploys when it came to teaching us at Christmas. And, and so somewhere buried in um, the gifts that we opened around the tree, 
which always took us by surprise, was, was a, a wrapped onion or um, a turnip or um, on a couple of occasions uh, a little bag of peas. Um, now, these, these could not compete with the toys that we received um, produced by the best toy makers of the time. Um, and they always surprised us, they always made us laugh, but boy, did they get our attention. And what she was, what she was doing, and she talked about this, is she was helping us to understand that we shouldn't forget where we came from that in the west coast of Scotland, she was born into a home of 11 children, dirt poor. And she didn't even taste a candy until she was a teenager. And so they used peas from a little bit of leftovers from dinner in, in the bag, and they would, they would take those peas to school, and they would pretend that they were eating candies as they, they ate the peas. And she was not going to allow any kind of commercialized Christmas to pass under her watch without taking the opportunity to teach her grandchildren that we came from simple means and that we shouldn't forget God's care for us. What I really remember, and especially in connection with this text, this is where biography comes, becomes theology for me, is I remember that, that there was a kind of a ritual that we had in her little semi-detached home in the Keel Rogers Road area. And she had a very small entranceway, and we would all be sort of putting our coats on. And there's always this very awkward kind of action that she was doing, sort of sort of behind the scenes. But it was so small, that was, there wasn't really any behind the scenes. And we would be putting our coats on, as we put our, our arms back, she would be pressing something into our hands. And it was money. It was always a quarter, a silver quarter. That's when, when quarters were really made of silver and not just some kind of nickel composite. They were really, really special. And, and there was a line that my mom used that just rings in my ears uh, uh, even today. Mom, don't give the kids money. Of course, she was completely oblivious to her daughter's instruction. And visit after visit after visit after visit, mysteriously quarters would show up in our pockets and in our mitts. And on occasion when she couldn't orchestrate it perfectly, they would end up in our boots. But we always knew where it came from. During university, I had the privilege of living with my grandmother. This was quite a, quite a run we had together. But it was a nice run, except for, except for me ripping the handle off her fridge and um, snapping the, the dial on her television set and um, crushing her coffee table in the middle uh, of both layers by, by falling back on it one, late one evening. Other than those few episodes, it was really quite a nice relationship and uh, quite a nice run. But by living with her, and by helping her with shopping and by doing some banking for her and some other things, I realized that she really didn't have very much money. That she was really living paycheck to paycheck and maybe even a little bit less. I also realized that, that my being there and helping her a little bit with the rent was, was, was really helpful. And so her, her simplicity and her generosity and her kindness, and her always being there for us, um, 
helps me think about generosity today. I'm not shaking her memory anytime too soon. And in the same way that we're not shaking the memory of this poor widow that Jesus points us to in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. I think about my grandmother when I think about people being tight for money, when I think about simplicity. And I think about my grandmother often in the church when we begin conversations around stewardship and around fundraising. I think a lot about her and about her way and about her attitudes and about what she represents to me and how she points me to Jesus, and in particular, how she points me to Jesus' teaching that we're looking at today. We're doing a little series called, called Money Talks. There's this conversation between Jesus and his disciples where Jesus makes it clear where money fits in the kingdom of God, how important or unimportant it seems uh, to be. And, and there's a, f- a few things that come to my mind as I reflect on this text in relationship to, to the ways that we, we think about money. One thing that, that, that strikes me is that, that we often build our thinking and our strategies um, in the church in North America um, around expectations we have about people who we assume have a lot to give. It's, it's one, of the, one of the strategies that we employ is this, this expectation that people who have excess income are going to really ante up and really provide that kind of constant important support for the life of the church. You know, those people who we, we think are mortgage-free, those, those double income, no kids, those um, people in well-paying professional jobs who we just know or assume we know have so much disposable income. Um, our top givers, uh, however you want to think about it, we, we have these assumptions around uh, at least some people and how they should really sort of pay up and do their, do their part. In Jesus' teaching, he, he talks about the teachers of the law being people who just, just throw their money around. And, and the implication is that they, they throw their money in their worship but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't come from their hearts. It's a kind of a careless approach to money. The story in the context of stewardship does raise a question about our spirituality of stewardship. Not just our strategy for raising money, but, but it does have something to say and something to suggest and, and something hopeful and good when it comes to the use of our money and the exhibition of our money in worship and in our relationship with God. The the teaching of the widow who gave everything she had, there has to be a lesson for those people who we really want to give out of their large amounts. There's got to be a connection here. There's got to be a way for people who have a lot to, to understand what it means to give a lot. At the very least, this, this text is one of those texts where that, that kind of makes nonsense. You know, there's, there's a question that often comes up during these times. People ask in the church, who've been raised in the church, should I, should I tithe 10% of my gross income or should I tithe 10% of my net income? Like, help me understand how much I should, I should give. And, and the story of the widow kind of makes that a kind of a silly question. 
It's kind of one of those realities that says, if you're asking that question, you just, you just may be coming very close to missing the point. Whether you have a lot or whether you, you don't have a lot. The, the, the second thing is this. I've been at Knox for a few years, and, and um, like a lot of communities and a lot of people, a lot of traditions, Knox Sometimes its strengths are its weaknesses. Lorna this morning and John talked about how Knox has this privilege of meeting people from around the world. And it has to do with our being downtown. It has to do with our tradition. It has to do with our proximity to the university. Um, there's a lot of factors that feed into this, this kind of generous communal life that we share and that sometimes we take for granted, but we shouldn't. This is the church that God's calling us to be. But, but when it comes to money and comes to future planning, one of the, one of the, the conversations that often goes on is, is around the question, how in the world do we build a solid giving community when such a high percentage of our community comes for a while and then goes again? How do we think about money in terms of transience? How do we think about money for people who actually don't have a plan? How, how can we think about money for people who are, in many cases, when it comes to education today, living on debt and mortgaging their future for, for, that, for that training? What if our spirituality of stewardship came out of the story of the widow so that we could come to a place that instead of seeing that as a problem, we just decided to affirm that every single person in our community has something to give. Without worrying about the percentages, without worrying about the years, and even without worrying about the costs. Like, it's interesting that there's no connection here in Jesus' teaching about the maintaining of the temple. It cost money in that time, in Jesus' time, to maintain the temple. It cost the liturgical life of Israel and the liturgical life of Christians and the community life and the missional life of those communities all took money. But in this particular episode, Jesus is not concerned with the financial planning of the temple. He's concerned with a picture of a woman who had nothing to give and yet was able to give everything. And that somehow, giving out of her poverty, instead of out of her large amounts, somehow that gives us a little bit of an inkling of what Jesus thought, not only about money, but what Jesus thinks about giving and generosity. The third thing that occurs to me on a spirituality of stewardship is why does Jesus focus on a poor widow? Strategically, it just, it just seems so ill-conceived to do that. It doesn't seem very pragmatic. It doesn't seem practical. It's, it's probably not going to raise the, the artificial sums of money that anybody is going to come up with, never mind the real costs. There's a, there's a, there's a debate in... Um, there's a debate in this, uh, in this text. Is, is Jesus pointing to the widow because he really wants to, to criticize the religious rulers who have a lot of money and actually don't care about widows? Or, or other people think that he's 
choosing the widow because he really does identify with the widow. There's something that really touches him. There's something that really moves him. There's something that he sees in her life that helps him to express who he is and what he's called to do. As some people have well said, he points his attention and others' attention to this widow who gave everything she had because Jesus was a man who was called to give everything that he had. And that in a way, this story of the poor widow helps us to understand when we look at Jesus where the grace and the love and the ability to do what she did came from in the first place. Jesus is the one who reminds us that we can live for God and others and give everything that we have in freedom because of God's love and grace and promise to provide. And this is where the widow's story and Christ the King Sunday, I think, come together. Because we start to understand that Jesus' notion of kingship, that his way of lordship is, is, is kind of not the kind of king that we want, not the kind of king who is financially flush, not the kind of king who is going to do everything for us that we've ever dreamed of to fulfill our wish lives, but the kind of king who is really going to be able to love the world and to show us that the only way to love the world is to give yourself for the world. The widow's might and Jesus' life may be connected to us through the Apostle Paul's teaching in Philippians, which, which is a kingship text and one of the oldest in the New Testament that, that probably should be read more than we read it um, because it reminds us of the way of Jesus' lordship. Each of you, Paul writes, should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality God with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus sees his calling in the offering of the widow. He sees his freedom in the offering of the widow. And he sees his disciples' future in the offering of the widow. He focuses on her because she helps him to express what it means to live in God's kingdom. And one way if the widow's story is our story, and if the widow's story is the story of God's kingdom, one way maybe that we'll be able to detect that God's kingdom is very close and coming really, really quickly in our midst is when stories like this, about people like this, become interesting to us again.
When I was a university student living with my grandmother, one day I was rifling through her stuff. It's a true confession. She had a second china cabinet up in the spare room that I realized that as a kid I was not allowed to go in and touch. And so as a university student, you know, experiencing my freedom in my grandmother's home, I, I started nosing around in the second china cabinet. And somewhere on one of the shelves in that china cabinet, I, I, I found a little, a little sugar bowl. I opened that sugar bowl and it was filled with silver quarters. I remember thinking that day that when I was a kid, I always thought that my grandmother was rich because she was always giving us money. She always had these beautiful quarters that could buy so much gum. Back in those days, you have no idea how much gum a quarter could buy. I always thought my grandmother was rich. And that day when I found those quarters, I knew that she was rich. In the same way that the king's widow was rich. In the same way that Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who invites us to live richly in God's kingdom. Amen.